So as we're jumping into the book of John chapter 3, um, let me just tell you, there are few passages more intimidating to teach um, than John chapter 3. Um, this is a vital passage. Um, this, this is a huge one. It, it is, um, we've seen, we, I mean, the, everywhere in the sports world, and I think we've got some pictures of the, of, I mean, you, you've seen, especially if you're older, you've seen John 3.16 presented in multiple ways like this. Um, all over the place. This, 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 is the, this is the home of John 3.16. John 3 is, obviously, although you may not have ever put that all together. And so um, as, we, as we jump into this, um, as we jump into this passage and, and work our way there, um, it's, I, I will tell you, as a teacher, it is a little intimidating. It's a little um, crazy to go into this. I'm going to um, and it's not going to just be me. So over the next few weeks, um, Paul is going to teach through part of it. Um, John Redfern's father, um, John Redfern Sr., um, is going to teach through a part of it, including the verse itself, John three sixteen. Um, a pastor for many, many years. And so um, he's taught through this before. I'm intrigued to hear that. And then um, in that mix, we're also going to have a Sunday where we're, and Paul's going to tell you about this at the end of the service, but we're going to have a Sunday where we have a uh, a Bible expert, a man who's going to bring in many ancient copies of the Bible and talk about how we got the Bible as it is, which, again, to understand, this, that's how core and key this conversation is. Um, maybe the most iconic passage, I think certainly the most iconic verse in the Bible, at least for Christianity in the modern era in, in the last 50 years or so. So, um, again, looking at last week, if you were here, you heard um, Dr. McClure uh, uh, teach through the idea of a base camp, that we need to return to this base camp periodically. You're going to, you're going to hear that here in the book of John on a regular basis, but in John 3, that you go, okay, we, we spread out, we go out, we, we reach out for the adventure, we seek to make contact, we make a difference, we go on mission, we reach out, and then periodically we have to come back to base camp, resettle and reset. And John 3 is just about the best passage in the Bible for that. Um, so wherever you are, this encapsulates the gospel in one sentence and in really in two words, um, which we'll get to those today. Um, I grew up, uh, since I grew up in church, and the, the, I'm a little bit more, especially when I was younger, a little bit more of a, a, an inaccurately minded church about things like grace. But um, in Sunday school and children's church, John 3.16 was a, obviously a well-known, famous passage, but the, the job at that age was to see how quickly you could recite John 3.16, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever been in Bible drill or that kind of stuff, but, but you go into that where, you, where it's John 3.16, forgot the Lord, his only God, and you, as quickly as you can, you got to get that out there and you win if you're fastest. And with the little kids, especially my ADD mindset like that, it moved, it, it actually impressed me, and I remember... There was a little old lady in the church, and I mean little and old. I mean, I don't know how old she was, but she was ancient then to such a degree. Little old lady who walked with a cane until she got her, at some point it was a walker with the little tennis balls on it. And she, um, she would sit up there with her little, um, her, sit on the second row, and she had the little handheld thing that was plugged straight into the, into the pew that, that amplified the noise. And and if it wasn't working, she would just like say so in the middle of the sermon type of like. So she was kind of a feisty old lady. And, and, um, but she'd been a, a Methodist preacher for years and years and years, for decades, and, and had retired. And, and then 80 years later after retirement, she was still in the church. And 
Um, she, was, she was old enough and small enough and, and kind of wizened enough that, that when I was old enough and, and saw um, The Empire Strikes Back, Yoda and she were clearly like modeled from the same image. Um, everyone in the church super respected her. And as a kid, I didn't really understand why. She, um, but one Sunday that the pastor was going to apparently reference, I remember nothing that the pastor said positively, but the, the, um, he, he, uh, he wanted her to come up and, and quote John 3.16 from the mic, if I'm remembering this correctly. And so she did. And she took about five minutes to do it. And not, not because she was old and not because she was voice was shaky or anything. In fact, the opposite. But because she could barely get through it emotionally. Um, every word to her was gold or, or, or honey or something. I mean, it was just, it was unreal. As a kid, I remember like part of me at first going like, come on, come on, you, I can do this faster type of thing. But then as I'm, even as a kid realizing what she's doing and how every single word of this verse carried phenomenal and for her probably eternal weight in ways that um, only someone who's been in ministry and taught through it and, and engaged with it and wrestled with it her entire life I would be able to. And so uh, there, is a, there is a power to what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks that I would, I would urge you, beg you not to miss. Um, it, this is a, um, one, of the, one of the friends of D.L. Moody um, who he modeled after preached John 3.16 in his church for seven straight Sundays. Um, without duplicating anything, just teaching through John 3.16. And, and I actually thought about it, and someday I would love to do something like that, to take just that one verse and teach for weeks and weeks and weeks about it. Um, and, and seminary, hearing it taught through and all that kind of stuff, it is, it is powerful, which is why it gets so much attention. It is the gospel in just a few words. Um, John 3 that we're jumping into today is an is a, an overheard conversation. We're kind of eavesdropping on a conversation, and we don't really know why we exactly why we have this conversation. Um, the only two people present were Jesus, who, as far as we know, didn't write anything, and Nicodemus. And so, but this this is told in a third person about a conversation between a guy named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, and Jesus. And and the conversation apparently was told by one or both of them to John, the apostle. And I also I always like the idea, we're going to find out before the end of the book that the apostle John, this young man, has an inside track with the Pharisees. And we don't know exactly why, we don't know where that comes from, just that he knows some of them and, and has access even to their homes. And so uh, maybe it's that John's family knows Nicodemus and his family. And I, I like the image of of either Jesus, I mean, I love the, the image of Jesus sitting around a campfire and, and at the end of the day or sometime when they're traveling saying, have I ever told you guys about the conversation I had with Nicodemus and, and telling them and, and how potent this was? I also love the idea of years later after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven, Nicodemus sitting down with John and saying, did I ever tell you about that one, the one-on-one conversation I had with Jesus? And him telling John and John going, I got I to gotta get that down. We got we to gotta keep that. So John 3, starting in verse 1, I'll, I'll go through about verse 9 here. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? So I'm going to stop there, and we're going to start teaching through John 3 there. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, remember that line, there was a man. Now, I'm going to take you back. Remember that verses and chapters were all added in later. The ancient copies of Scripture don't have that. That's there for us to study. That's there for us to be able to reference it, to tell you where to turn in your Bible and that kind of stuff. So, so if you, but if you read straight through, you'll see that clearly there's a connection being made here. Verse 2, verse 25, talking about Jesus um, needing no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew was in the heart of man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is, in fact, the first example we get of Jesus knowing what's in the hearts of men, and he knows Nicodemus, and he knows what's in Nicodemus's heart. He's that very man, one of the men that, that Jesus knows what's going on in his heart. And so we get to see Jesus being super patient with Nicodemus throughout this chapter. He's kind, he's gentle, he's patient, and that's because he knows the heart of Nicodemus. Clearly, that is there to let us know that. So you hold on to that one. Here's one of those men right now. This theme we're going to run into, and it's going to be all through the book of John, it's going to show back up, is this theme of new. And not just new, but completely new, utterly new. This is a different type of new than we're used to wrapping our brains around. And Jesus is going to use metaphors and pictures and concepts that are meant to drive this home. Not just new, but really, really, extremely new. And John, I'm looking for the humanity. You see the humanity of Christ as well as the divinity, well integrated, that he is man and experiencing life as a man, and he is God. Um, but his divinity, he's experiencing life as a man, and so he's experiencing the dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is giving him these supernatural insights, this miraculous, these signs, and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to see Jesus now engaging as a friend. A friend. He, he so loves the world. That's, that's the idea, that Jesus is coming now as a friend, and it's going to cost him. This is the, always the truth. It is always true that friendship in, among humans is always expensive. It's never free. As humans, we're not good at it. It's going to cost us to be friends. It's better than not having it. It's a, it's a constant thing that people will warn you against. Oh, be careful about being friends with these people or friends with these people or whatever. Why? Well, because it'll cost you. It'll be harder. Right. Yes, it will. That doesn't mean it's not right or better or, or whatever. So I am, I'm looking for this as we go through this. At the same time, this wisdom and insight from the Spirit so unfiltered that Jesus is experiencing, he can just read the hearts of men. So he's going to have this conversation with Nicodemus, whose name means the victory of the people. This is the first Jew, who, who especially a Pharisee, a representative of the Jew, who seems to be getting it. And so he's asking some questions. Verse 2 this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He came by night, probably secretively. That's probably what's going on here. Although it also guarantees there's not a crowd. So we don't want to throw Nicodemus under the bus as a coward. Usually the Pharisees confront Jesus with a crowd of people because they're trying to trap him or trick him. Nicodemus is not. He actually wants to have a conversation. And part of it may be he doesn't want to have his friends overhear him having this conversation, but part of it may just be he doesn't want to be interrupted. He doesn't want his, his agenda to be questioned. At minimum, he really seems to want to know the truth. 
which is incredibly powerful, incredibly noble to really want to know the truth. And he's gone to the source for it. In the, in the neo-atheist world, we talk about when we have to engage with people in the atheist world, especially modern times, their, their tact is to come at God as though they're evaluating God, is to come at God that way. And that's our natural tendency is we don't have enough insight, but we want to evaluate without the insight. That's natural for us as humans. We evaluate with our limited knowledge. But you remember, remember a few weeks ago, maybe months ago now, when we put the video of Stephen Fry up on the screen and, and he's being asked by the interviewer, how would you... When you stand before God someday, what will you say if, if there is a God and you stand before him someday? And Stephen Fry's answer was, if, I, if there's a God and I stand before him, I will, what I will say to him is this, how dare you? That was the first line. So he's putting himself in the position of judge and jury for almighty God. And, and God has been found wanting in his eyes. That's not Nicodemus. Nicodemus, though confused, though ignorant, though having very little what's going on, at least has come with the heart asking honestly, help me out here. Nicodemus admits that they know some things, by the way. By we, he means the Pharisees. He, there already are some things they know, and he's going to admit this. Listen, we know that none of the rest of the Pharisees are going to admit this. But Nicodemus says, we already know a few things. Here's what we know. We know you're a teacher, and we know you're from God. Now, this, this week, studying through this, here's what struck me. You are a teacher from God. What struck me about that was, wouldn't that be the most awesome compliment anyone could pay you if you're a teacher? I mean, think about, think about those of you who are teachers. You've taught Sunday school. You've taught Bible studies. You've taught children's ministry. You've taught, you've taught schools. You've taught wherever you've taught. Can you, can you imagine a greater compliment? Here's what we know about you. You're a teacher from God. And as great a compliment as that would be for any of us who are teachers... I mean, wouldn't it be, that would be, that's what, you, that's what you beg for. You would love to stand before God and have God say, listen, here's, here's the final judgment. You were a teacher and you came from me. Wow. But catch, that doesn't even scratch the surface with Jesus. This is how far we've gotten. We know you're a teacher from God. I think Nicodemus is beginning to suspect he may be more, but, but we know this much. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. Jesus is so much beyond just being a teacher from God. And yet that's, that's, as far, that's a good place to start. Not a good place to finish. Good place to start for Jesus. If you can accept Jesus as a teacher from God, then what he has to say is from God. And therefore you should listen to it and change your life to it. You're on a really, really good path. It's not the end of the path. That's the beginning of the path. He's a teacher from God. But man, how cool would it be for us as teachers just to have someone say that about just If we could get that far along. There are signs um, that Jesus is doing. Nicodemus may be, uh, again, suspecting more now because he's seen some of these signs, whatever they happen to be. We don't know which, which signs Nicodemus means here. He, um, he's not, he doesn't say, just that there are signs. Now, and, and in the book of John, we've only seen one. We've seen him turn water into wine, but that's about it. We don't know what other signs that maybe the other gospels have opened up will, should tell us more. But there's some, there's some other things going on here. There's some signs that Jesus has been doing. There's some people believing in him. Already the Pharisees, even the, even the Pharisees, maybe the Sanhedrin, meaning the political group of the Pharisees that kind of run the show here, maybe they already are beginning to admit this. Now, I do want to take just one second and talk about signs. Here's how I'm going to interpret the word sign here for us as we engage with this. A sign is the thing that lets you know God is at work. That's what it means. Um, and I want to really encourage you, going back to that base camp idea, that you look at your life and you think about what are the signs from God in your life. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but 
for some of you, like me, they may be largely rational. I mean, it's the arguments for the existence of God are so sound. Those are signs to me. The fact that an argument for God is the most rational one, that's a sign to me. That means something. That's proof to me. That, that the, there's no good, res, go, no good explanation for what happened in the resurrection except the resurrection. That all the rest of them require so much more blind faith than that Jesus was raised from the dead. Like that's, okay, that there's objective morality. Okay, there's lots of guesses, but the one that makes sense is that there's someone who designed us to have objective morality. Like, those are important to me. Those are signs to me. When my psychological state is, is founded in anxiety or frustration or, or, or fear or whatever else, and it's harder for me to, I'm running out of oxygen, climbing up on the mountaintop, to use that imagery again. When I return to base camp, one of the things that allows me to breathe deeply and freely is the fact that it is rational that what we believe is true. There's also relational ones. Friendships that I've had, relationships with Ginger and my family, like there's experiences that I've had. Sometimes my friendships with people out here that you would go like, that is a reminder to me that this is real. God is real and he's there. Experiences I've had and stories I've gotten to hear from others, even hard times. There are highlights that you go, in this highlight, I remember God was there and it was so clear. But for some of us, the sign is when God brings us through an incredibly low point. As we reach those super low points, death and tragedy and abuse and, and those type of things. We hear about that in the, in the counseling world. We hear about that in the adoption and foster world quite a bit. And our church, as you're seeing, is super engaged in that world. We, we love people who other people have failed to love well. We see them as treasure even if no one else has seen them as treasure. And so when we do that, we get to see God work in them. And that begins to prove to us once again that God is real and he is active and he still works. That's part of why, as we continue to talk about Royal Family Kid Camp and track, um, in a few minutes, uh, John's going to come up and share, not yet, but just in a minute, um, a little bit about it more. Like, that's part of the thinking is, you want to see a miracle? You want to see signs? This is a good place to do it. As you watch kids' lives change and that kind of stuff. This is, those signs are real. I don't know what yours are. The birth of a child or or that God bringing you through a tragedy, or, or whatever it is, these small or sometimes big miracles. And, and many of us, by the way, I've, over the years I've discovered many Christians, even though we don't talk about it much in the evangelical church, many of us have things we have experienced that we would say, honestly, this is just a flat miracle. I mean, it's just a straight-up miraculous sign, the voice of God telling me something, or, or God speaking something into me that I couldn't possibly know without this, or seeing something happen in the natural world, but it's supernatural. And, and so wherever that is, um, I, would, I would encourage you to return to those in the hard times. They know that there are signs, and they've, they've been convinced of it, but they're not sure what to do with this next. So Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now notice Jesus is not answering him at all. Nicodemus made a statement. He doesn't even ask a question. But the next verse begins with, and Jesus answered him. Jesus is not answering it. Jesus is speaking as though Nicodemus didn't just speak. This has nothing to do with what Nicodemus just said. No, no connection whatsoever. But Jesus knows what Nicodemus should have said. And remember, he knows what's in Nicodemus' heart. So he knows what Nicodemus wants to ask. And so Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus, um, if, uh, go back, a, another ver back up to um, uh, Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. So here you have Jesus answering to him, and truly, truly here, by the way, means pay attention. Truly, truly, we kind of lose truly, truly, as, as biblically cool as it is and poetic as it is, we lose it. Hey, listen up. That's truly, truly. 
That's a, I'm not actually doing that to you. I'm just, that's, a, that's what's going on. Truly, truly. Hey, this is, hey, if there's something important, any of you ever sat under a pastor who had the, the habit of saying, like, if you're only going to hear one thing I say today, you ever had that one? I've had a pastor who used to do that usually six or seven times in the same sermon. Hey, it's only one thing that you hear. This is it right here. This is it, except for the other one. Um, that's a, this is the one thing you want to. That's what Jesus is kind of doing here. Hey, listen, this is what you want to hear. This is what you need to hear. Okay, check this out. This is important. That's what Jesus is doing here. Um, it's, it's a little pushy, to be honest, probably. I say to you, unless you're born again, unless a man is born again, no, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not really answering him, but here's, this is fascinating. He cannot see the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus says, ask this question, right? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? We are, listen, dying, all of us. This is the human condition on earth. We're in the process of dying. We need the ultimate expression of a new identity. So if you think about how, what would be the ultimate expression of a brand new life? How would you communicate? Listen, this is a total change in identity. It starts all over. It is something that was dead, now made alive. What image would you use? The one Jesus uses is born again. You need to be born again. The first birth did not accomplish something. It missed something. You need to have it again. You need to re-experience being born. This is important. We are dying. Dead things need to be reborn. That's what needs to happen. Another birth. Nicodemus, obviously the literalist, does not follow this at all. Um, I've said before... Um, that the, in addition to the wounds in his hands and his feet and in his side, the big bruise on Jesus' forehead must be another indication of his, who he is. Time after time in conversations with these people, Jesus is going, no, 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 no. No one gets me. I imagine him just staring at Nicodemus when Nicodemus goes, how can I climb my mother's womb again? And Jesus is going, what? No, no, that's not what I'm, no, no, that's not the point that I'm making at all. But he's trying. Nicodemus is trying. And so Jesus is so patient with him. This is good news, by the way, for all of us. That Jesus doesn't give up after banging his head. Like, no, no, you're not getting this. You're not following me. Otherwise, we'd all be in big trouble. Jesus answers, no, no, listen, listen. No, no, no. Listen. Truly, truly. See, it's there again. Listen up. No, here's what I'm saying to you. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, unless someone is born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, that's... That was just born of flesh is flesh. It's not about being born in your mother's. Ooh, we're not talking about your mother's womb again. Like, who does, who thinks that? He doesn't say that in the passage, but that's always like, <laughs> no, this is not about being born of the flesh again. That wouldn't solve this problem at all, Nicodemus. That's not the problem. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's what's needed here, Nicodemus, is a new spirit. Now, Jesus so constantly, consistently cites the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. That when Jesus is going to say later in John, I don't even speak my own words, they're the words of the Father. He almost could be meaning literally the words that have already been revealed in Scripture. If, if, when you, if you read through the Old Testament and you mark every time, if you're reading Scripture enough that you recognize when things are parallel and when they mix, if, if just your New Testament has little notes in it that reference what Old Testament, what Hebrew Scripture passage Jesus is referencing, nearly every phrase the man says 
is that. We don't know that because we don't study both of them well. It's kind of like, um, I may have mentioned this before. I can't remember what was, what was Wednesday night and what was Sunday night, but the, the sign that's up in, Fort, in Tyler right now that has Abraham Lincoln, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, please tell me you all know Jesus said that, right? A- Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus Christ when he said that. Abraham Lincoln would be going, no, no, no. He, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. I'm well read enough to know what Jesus said. You people think I said that. I didn't come up with that. That's too brilliant. Jesus said that. Anyway, this is the same kind of thing. Jesus here is citing an Old Testament passage. When you say, born of water and spirit, listen to Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is a prophecy about the existence of a new covenant, a new way of doing things. We call it the New Testament. Just another word for covenant. The New Covenant. This is Ezekiel talking about what we're studying in the book of John. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the way this is played out. This is what's going on. The the spirit is being revitalized, brought to life born again. That's what he's telling us. So to help us get this, understand the natural condition, again, of living things on earth, the flesh, is death. and It's how you measure time. I think you got a little video to... So here you go. So here you have a... Nothing's being... No one's doing anything to these. They're just time is passing. That's what it means for time to pass. As time passes in the scientific world, time passing means... Decay. It means as entropy increases, that's what's going on. That's the natural state of living things in the flesh. By the way, unless that was by far the least gross of all the options on YouTube. Let me just warn you, don't search that if you've got a, a weak stomach at all. It's a, don't, no, don't do it again. A, mm. All right, so, so the flesh decays over time. The actual way we measure, is it still? Thank you. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so um, the flesh decays. The actual way we measure time, that's it. We need a new life, not an old painted up life. Um, John, you can go ahead and start heading this way. And I don't remember which, who was going to pray for which, we have a deacon volunteer in both services. Thank you, Chantel. So um, so as John's heading up here, um, uh, here's the, as we're about to talk a little bit more about Royal Family Kids Camp and track, um, this, this is a, this idea When I was growing up, the first funeral that I ever spoke at, I was like, I don't remember how old I was. I was young. It was at my grandfather's. And my grandfather was was a, I mean, he was a manly man. He could fix anything. I have so many stories. Our our son Holland is named after him. I mean, this was a, he was an amazing guy. And when he died, I went to the funeral. They had, they had literally put makeup on the body, like they had embalmed him and then put makeup on the body and all that kind of stuff. And as a kid, I, I was standing here with my grandmother. People kept saying, like, he looks so good. He looks so natural. Looks, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, Hop never wore makeup ever. <laughs> like, that didn't happen. Listen, listen this isn't about dressing up something dead. This is about new. And so when we're talking about Royal Family Kids Camp track, foster and adoption, these things, this is about something new. This is a newness, an experience of a newness of life. So, John, share with us a little bit about what goes on there. And Sure. 
Um, well, good morning. My name is John Keeling, and um, I just want to share with you a couple of things about these two ministries that our church has been a part of for a very long time. Um, Royal Family Kids Camp is a summer camp for kids age 6 to 11 who reside in the foster care system. Teen Reach Adventure Camp is a similar camp, but it's for 12 to 15-year-olds who have aged out of the Royal Family Kids Camp. Um, these kids all come from a background of abuse and neglect, uh, and most of them are forced to grow up very quickly. Uh, we offer the camp free of charge to foster families and group homes to support them in their efforts to provide for these kids. So the idea is we provide a week of carefree fun where the kids get to enjoy swimming, fishing, arts, crafts, archery, Bible teaching, singing, basically fun stuff, camp stuff. Um, Teen Reach Adventure Camp is very similar, except it's based on the uh, Low Ropes Challenge course. And what we do there is we, uh, we teach them problem solving, uh, building trust, self-esteem, teamwork, work ethics, things like that. Uh, they get to do uh, crafts and archery and, and boating and other things like that many times for the first time ever. That's kind of one of the neat things, uh, especially like, you know, in the video they mentioned getting on the boat. Um, nine times out of ten, a lot of the kids have never been on a boat or on a lake, much less, you know, just things we take for granted like tubing and, and skiing and things like that. Um, our volunteers are people just like you. Um, they have a heart to minister to the less fortunate. They, um, we do background checks. Uh, we train people on working with abused and neglected kids. Um, and here's the thing, and I found this to be true over and over and over. You come to this camp thinking, I'm going to make a difference in the life of a kid. And it turns out, no, that's mostly going to happen to you. Um, God's going to change you while you're there. Um, many of these kids, when they come to camp, uh, they are afraid. Uh, some of them are angry. Um, and that's because of the life that, they've, they, that they're living. Um, and it's always interesting to see them get off of the bus. And, and I've, I've literally seen this happen. Uh, you see a kid get off the bus um, and they are kind of closed in. They don't know what to think about this. You know, they mentioned we, we kind of greet them when they come off the bus with signs and things like that. And it's a little overwhelming to them. And, and you see them, you know, have this um, almost like a, like, a, like a scared animal. And within hours, you see them begin to relax. You see them to begin to say, maybe this isn't too crazy. Maybe these people aren't too crazy. Um, and then slowly but surely they open up and they start to become themselves. They become kids again, uh, which is what we want them to experience anyway. So a couple of other things. Um, often these kids have been moved from home to home. Some of them uh, have been sent to group homes or institutions and their birthdays are overlooked. So one of the cool things we do with Royal Family Kids Camp is have a huge birthday party where every single kid gets an individual sized birthday cake with their name on it and a birthday gift box filled with all kinds of goodies. Um, our church has always been faithful to fill these boxes for the campers over the years and we want to ask you to consider maybe doing that again this year. Um, someone's going to be in the foyer at the uh, end of the service this morning uh, and there will be instructions if you'd like to help out with this. If you're interested in being a volunteer at camp, we still need a few men and women to compete, uh, or excuse me, to complete our teams for this upcoming year. Uh, Royal Family Kids Camp is in uh, June, and our track camps are in July. So if you're interested, please come talk to us in the foyer uh, after church uh, if you're feeling like you want to be a part of, of this ministry. Um, for those who can't be at camp, um, there's uh, opportunities for you as well. Um, we'd like to consider, um, we'd like for you to consider possibly being a prayer partner with us. Um, one of the most important jobs you could have 
is going to the throne and talking to the Father on behalf of, of his kids. Uh, and, and praying over us. Uh, specifically, we'll have a sign-up for Royal Family, uh, which will come up through uh, June, and then we'll also have a sign-up for those who would like to be interested in praying for Track Camp, which is going to come up a little bit later. Um, we understand that uh, every ministry is not for everyone, but if the Lord is speaking to you about being involved, you need to listen. I'll just put it that way. You need to listen. You know, one of the, the, the really cool things about this... Um, I just finished a book not too long ago. It's called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's about a, a kid who came up through a really, really rough home life, um, foster care system, things like that, and just uh, and how he kind of got out of that uh, as an adult. And one of the things that he talks about is he just needed to see a different way. And the biggest blessing that he had in, in learning to come out of really, really hard origins is just other people that came to him and told him there's a different way to live. And that's what we really try to do at Track and Roll Family Kids Camp. They just need to know there's a different way to live. They need to know they're loved. Um, and that's the other thing that's, you know, one of the, well, the coolest things we've seen is kids who will eventually work up the nerve to come and say, why are y'all doing this? They want to, and in fact, one of the questions is often asked is, how much are they paying you guys? And they really do think we're being paid to be there. And when we tell them, no, we're here because we want to be here. We're here because God loves you, and we want you to know that. And it just breaks them. They don't know what to do with that. And by the way, it'll break you too. So uh, please, if God's talking to you about being a part of this ministry, please stop by and talk to one of us outside. We'd love to, to share this ministry opportunity with you. Abba, Father, and I am so broken for these hearts, these precious hearts that you love and you created. I can only imagine how broken you are over watching the children that you love be abused and abandoned and neglected and exploited. Um, you are a God of righteous anger, and I just pray for the hearts in this church right now that we would be angry alongside you mm. and that we would be angry enough to do something about it that we would not sit here and say, who's going to step up for these kids, but that each heart in this room, if it's being stirred, that you would show them a way to get involved in this ministry. Like John said, prayer is so powerful, and I thank you for all of the ways in the last couple of years that prayer has changed camp. All of the ways that you have been faithful to show your love to these kids, to the adults, to people in our community who are hearing about camp and hearing about the changes in the lives of these children. God, stir our hearts to make change. I just pray for the kids that are in the foster system right now. I pray that they would not have any barriers in getting to camp God, you know who's coming to camp. You have their names written down, and I pray your protection over them that nothing in their world, none of the system or the people around them would prevent them from getting to camp to hear about your love. I pray for their fears and their anxieties and their hesitations as they are going to walk off this bus and wonder, are these people safe? Who's going to hurt me today? Am I going to eat today? I pray that you would wipe that away. 
I just pray for their hearts, that they would be open to hearing about you. Some of these kids will hear about you for the first time. Some of them will experience you for the first time after hearing about you for years. God, I pray for change. I pray that they would see they can have a new identity in you. They don't have to live the way that they have. They don't have to follow the footsteps of their families that have hurt them or abandoned them. They can take on the name of a child of God. God, all the ways that we are intentional at camp to show them who they are in you, I pray that they would hear that. That they would know that you are their father and you will not hurt them. I pray that they would believe that. God, I pray for the adults that are going to be at camp. These sweet people who have given up their time, their resources to be at camp. I pray a hedge of protection over them that nothing would hinder them from being there. Thank you for their families. Thank you for their families that let them do this and sacrifice to let them spend a week or a weekend loving on these kids. Like John said, just because we love them, just because you love them. God, I praise you for creating a church culture such as South Spring that loves the orphans. Thank you for getting so many like-minded people together. What a beautiful thing it is to see your people come together to love and support what society says is unlovable. We know it's the exact opposite. We know you love these kids, God. Thank you for loving them, and thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us enough that we are stirred to do something and show your love to other kids, other people that need that love just as much as we did. God, you are good. You are good, and you are constant. You are faithful, and you are loving all the things these kids need, the things that these kids crave and maybe have never been shown, I just pray that they would see that. And all the things that we say and that we do, that they would see that you are good and you are loving. Thank you for sending your son, sending your son to die for us who are not worthy not because of anything that we have done. And God, what an incredible message for these kids to hear, that it is not up to them, it's not up to their background or what they've been given or not given or done or not done. It's only because of you. I pray these kids would hear that. They would know that there is another life waiting for them and they can be a part of it. They can take on that identity that you have already bestowed on them. It's done. your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> thank you so much, Chantel. Um, also, something that has not been said yet is that we're not doing, a lot of years we do a fundraiser for track and Royal Family Kids Camp. We're not doing that this year. Instead, at the end of this service, there will be people standing at the back. There are people at the table. If you would like to get involved in any way, there's lots of people back there at that table. Go let them know. If you would like to give to this, 
Obviously, it costs serious um, financial. There's a, there's a lot of money involved in, in running a camps like these. And so please give generously at the end of the service to, to the people who will be standing back there. This will go straight to Royal Family Kids Camp and Track. Also on our website, under the giving section, one of the headings is Royal Family Kids Camp and Track. You can give directly there. So um, this is a ministry that our church supports, that the people of our church support. Um, if, if you're intrigued to be involved in this at all, let them know in the back um, and uh, in the foyer. Here's the deal. The, the idea that stands out to me through this, part of why I think God has blessed this church is because of the heart for fostering and adopting. I think that's part of what this is all about, why God is continuing to bless us. And, I, and uh, our prayers that God would continue to do that and to show us what that means for us. And um, here's the thing. So they, you know, back to what I was saying about my grandfather, understand there's a difference here. Jesus Christ is not a mortician. He is an adopter. He starts things over. He doesn't just clean them up. He doesn't just beautify them. He starts them over. There's a, a quote from C.S. Lewis that is one of my favorites from Mere Christianity. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. This is, this is what Jesus says to us. It's He's not here to prune. He's not here to dress up a corpse. He's here to have us be born again. It's it's going to come over, over and over. They're renewed all over, restart. Sometimes it's tough to start over. Many of us have faced tough start over times, but Jesus is the start over kind of God. We see this theme of new life through the book uh, all over the time. Spirit of the Spirit multiple times in John. Look at John 6, 6, 63, 663. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Because remember, the flesh is dying. It doesn't bring that kind of life. The words that I have spoken to your spirit and life. Adam rebelled, and something changed about the human experience. The human race was, was then in a place of dead. And we either needed a mortician, dead, or a new birth. And praise God, he did not come to paint us, but instead to raise us. What a great picture for what God has done for us. What a beautiful picture. Dead people need to be born again, a new life. This morning, I love um, when we baptize people. That's, that's what's going on there, you, to, to, to bury them. Just like Don did with Duke this morning, as Duke showed us, to be buried. And then, but not to be left there, to be resurrected. And usually we say, I say, resurrected to walk in the newness of life. But maybe that's become too traditional. I love what Don said this morning. Raised to a brand new life. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is talking about here in John 3. A brand new life. Our spirit um, can become what was most alive in Jesus in, in a couple of chapters or in a, in a chapter from bare rock to living water. We need water to live and we're a wellspring. The, though the body needs water, the spirit becomes a spring for others, like the, the role in each other's lives. Obviously, the connection here of Ephesians 2, our, one of our favorite two words in the Bible, but God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, etc., among whom we once lived the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, 
That's what we bring to the table, but he brings something else. Don't marvel, Jesus says, that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Again, the Spirit and wind, the same Greek word. Jesus is using double language here to make a clear point. You shouldn't be surprised that this is the way that it works. This is how the Spirit works. We don't always know what's going on. We can't see the Spirit, but like wind, we know the Spirit is there. Are we aware of the wind? Ginger loves the wind. Um, if, if it's windy, she wants the windows open. She wants to, to go to sleep at night hearing the wind blowing outside in the trees and stuff like that, and, and uh, the scarier the better. Um, that's, it, it speaks, the, the Spirit, like the wind, speaks, it moves, it it doesn't rely on anyone to guide it. It does as it wills. It is powerful and romantic and mysterious and wonderful. That's the Spirit in action. And we even may be irritated with what the Spirit does. We may be bothered, but, but He is at work in us. John Piper, in an article about this that I was reading this week, says, asked this question. So are you thrilled by the movement of the Spirit? Or are you threatened by the movement of the Spirit? When we see the Spirit and hear the Spirit, is that, are we happy about that or are we scared? I want, I want us to at least be thoughtful about the movement and work of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And fortunately, Paul, next Sunday, will answer all of those questions. <laughs> so, just setting him up for failure there. So, um, uh, so Paul's going to pick that up next week. So, we're going to be praying. I, listen, I don't know what the Spirit is doing in you. I don't know where you are in this newness. If you've never experienced the free gift of eternal life, You've never been born again. Now, now you can see that's not just some Christian-y phrase. That's not some Jesus-y terminology. That is a perfectly healthy, sound analogy for what Jesus is calling us to. We need a mortician or we need to be born again. And he doesn't want to settle us with morticians. He, he has come that we might have life and have it abundantly to be reborn, our spirit to be reborn. And then for us to visualize that through water as well. What a beautiful beautiful picture. So wherever you are in that, and if you are a believer, that doesn't mean you don't need a new start or a fresh start or, or some newness there. God is still bringing newness into our lives all the time. So whatever that is, I pray that you are listening to the Spirit, that you're hearing the Spirit, that you have not become silent or deaf to the movement of the Spirit or ignorant of the fact that the Spirit is there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these men and women, and thank you especially for those who have worked and volunteered and served and suffered and poured out their hearts with these foster uh, kids and in the adoption world and, and all the different things, Lord, whether it's through CASA or Royal Family Kids Camp or Track or just flat fostering and adopting kids. Um, Lord, you are the great adopter and you have adopted us as your kids and, and we are so grateful for that and I pray that we will always hold tightly to that truth. Um, thank you, Father, that, that you are the Lord of our life. I pray that you would guide us through that. I pray that you would lead us and show us and, and help us to engage with that. God, whatever is needed today, I pray that you will provide that. I pray you'll provide it in a way that we'll know you did it. It'll be a sign that we can look back on for the rest of our lives. Thank you for this, Father, in your son's magnificent name. Amen.